From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What will phase two of the pandemic look like in Colorado? And how prepared is the state to reopen and trace the virus? Then, how the pandemic has affected Pueblo's sister city in Italy, one of the hardest hit places in the world. One man remembers losing his grandparents. They taught us not to get down and never give up because we are from Bergamo and uh, we are strong. Plus, overcoming the anxiety of the pandemic through meditation. The practice of pausing, naming the emotion is really critical. It helps us to notice that what we're feeling is it doesn't consume us, that an intense emotion can be experienced like a wave that comes in and comes out. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Governor Jared Polis revealed new details Monday about how the state will go about reopening the economy. He said the stay-at-home order will expire this Sunday as scheduled, and we could begin the long, slow return to a more normal life. As it rolls off April 27th, we need to figure out how we can run the marathon now that we've run this sprint. Uh, and, and sometimes the marathon's harder than a sprint. We have a team of CPR reporters joining us now to break it down. We'll get to Sam Brash and Michael Elizabeth Sackis in a moment. First, let's bring in CPR health reporter John Daly. He's been reporting on these plans and on what health experts think of them. Hi, John. Hi, Avery. Okay, paint us a picture. What could life in Colorado look like this time next week? Well, I think the governor really is trying to thread a needle here to loosen restrictions enough to try to restart the economy, but still keep people distant. And I think the key is that clip that you just played from the governor, that this is a marathon now. The state isn't able to test enough, really, and investigate confirmed positive cases to relax social distancing very much yet. Colorado is still having trouble getting supplies. The governor said that Coloradans should still stay at home whenever they can, and that older Coloradans and other people with high-risk health situations will need to continue to be extremely cautious. The state has done a number of models looking at these different scenarios to move forward without exceeding the state's hospital capacity. Colorado needs to maintain social distancing, encourage elderly Coloradans to exercise further caution, and people will need to wear masks in public, and the state will need to pursue aggressive case detection and containment. That's pretty much the model, uh, the vision the governor laid out yesterday. What will be allowed under new restrictions that's limited right now? Well, the new phase is being described as safer at home as opposed to stay at home. The governor says the distancing goal under the new phase still requires a lot of social distancing gauged at 60 to 65 percent as opposed to the 75 to 80 percent that Colorado has achieved under the stay at home order. Now, many elements are still exactly the same. No gatherings over 10 people stay at home when possible. The biggest change, I think, is the retail business. Under stay-at-home, only critical businesses like groceries and pharmacies could stay open. And in this next safer-at-home phase, retail would be open for curbside delivery and phased-in public openings with really strict precautions. So I think it would look a lot like what we've seen in grocery stores with strict social distancing and masks and things like that. And everything would be looked at on sort of a a case-by-case basis. 
Governor Polis also said individual counties will have the option to go with their own restrictions, right? Yeah, that's right. The idea is for counties and local communities to have the ability to roll out restrictions if there's an outbreak in one area or at one facility. Some counties like Eagle and Mesa, they've signaled that they'd like to ease some restrictions. The governor painted a picture where that could happen gradually, working with the state, looking at the data to ease some restrictions and then, if need be, reinstituting some. And he said there's always a risk involved and everything depends on how well people continue to do the social social distancing as much as they can. You've spoken with experts about what best practices are for reopening, and it involves a lot of testing and tracing of potentially sick people. Is that part of the state's plan right now? It's part of the plan down the road. Really, the testing is has gotten better and is getting better, but isn't really where it needs to be. So it sounds like any more loosening is going to require uh, that testing and and tracing to be at a higher level. But they're hoping they can still keep the spread under control with, you know, these limited rules. The expectation is that the testing and the tracing will be ramping up and is ramping up. But state officials say it's not possible to do the scale of testing they'd like to. So instead, we'll see this very carefully phased in effort uh, that they say will be informed by the data. Where do we stand with testing right now? Well, so far, Colorado has done more than 46,000 tests, and that's over roughly the last month. The state can now do maybe about 2,000 a day. Many models say we need many more than that, maybe as much as five times more than that. So we're nowhere near where we'd need to be. There's still problems with tests and testing and supplies, and this is being reported all over the country. This is the mantra, uh, not just in Colorado, but uh, really nationally and, and in many states. What does a best case scenario look like for reopening? What did experts tell you? You know, I think it might be worth first considering the worst case scenario, and and that's that we have a second surge of illness. That's exactly what happened with the Spanish flu pandemic a century ago, and that was devastating. So that's what they're trying to avoid. And the best case scenario is that is avoided and that Colorado can open up somewhat, ease restrictions, but keep a close eye on cases and hospitalizations and knowing that if things get bad again and in certain places and the health system looks like it could be overwhelmed, then we would see more restrictions being uh, reinstalled. So the best case scenario is avoiding the worst case scenario and sort of gradually uh, building out of this situation we're in now. So we're discussing best case scenarios. Governor Polis has pointed a lot to South Korea and Taiwan as models. CPR's Sam Brash has been reporting on what they're doing and what Colorado can learn from them. He's here now. Hi, Sam. Hey, Avery. How you doing? Doing all right. Sam, what steps have those countries taken to control the spread of the disease? I mean, I think they followed the correct protocol for a public health response to a pandemic from the get-go. I mean, it's, it's test, trace, repeat. They did that when the infections were at much lower levels than they've ever been here in the U.S. And as a result, both these countries, they had, their schools are open, their shops are open, people are in the parks. They were able to um, avoid what we've largely seen here in the U.S., because they conducted a competent public health response um, in those basic steps in in testing people, finding out who they'd gotten in touch with, and and enforcing effective quarantines. That's still what needs to happen here if we're going to get on top of this. The only thing is, you know, Colorado's outbreak is much worse 
than it ever got in either of those countries. And you describe a tension between privacy and public health. Um, in these countries, the biggest pressure in Colorado has come from people worried about the economy. And that's tricky, of course, because a lot of people getting sick isn't necessarily good for the economy either, right? Absolutely not. I mean, I think if there's one framing I've resisted in covering all this, it's talking about public health and the economy being opposed. I think this is something, you know, Michael and I know from usually common climate change, there's no jobs on a dead planet. And there are far fewer jobs if people are getting sick whenever they go to work. Um, probably the best economic policy is, is controlling this disease. I do think politicians understand that here in Colorado. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's, there's actually much opposition between these two ideas. You want a strong economy, you have to get on top of this virus. And given what John described earlier about the state's approach, how does Colorado's strategy match up with what other countries are doing? I, I think it's just a, you know, a matter of, of scale at this point. Uh, like I said, Taiwan and South Korea have been incredibly effective at uh, testing and contact tracing. And, and the third part of it, which I don't think gets talked about enough, which is quarantines, right? So if you test positive or see someone who's tested positive, um, in Taiwan, you go into a two-week quarantine order. What's really interesting in, in that country, they literally pay you to stay home and not go out. And they enforce those quarantines through, you know, some pretty rigorous measures. You know, you get uh, fed by the government. You have people checking in on you three times a day. Um, and they think, too, that they're monitoring people's movement through through cell phone data. So, there's lots of measures in place to make sure that if someone is carrying this disease, they are not out and about uh, in public. So just to reiterate, the advice from elsewhere is to test as many people as possible and trace who they've been in contact with. Here in Colorado, a lot of that will happen at the local level. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis has spoken with a number of public policy departments. Michael, welcome. Hi, Avery. Michael, what did you hear from public health officials about how ready they believe that they are? I spoke with six of the state's largest public health departments, and almost all of them said they don't have the tests or the staff needed to do contact tracing at the level that they like, at least not yet. They're ramping up testing and they're ramping up staff. And most of them are already doing some contact tracing, but they said it's fairly limited right now. Tri-County, for example, which serves Adams, Arapahoe, and Douglas counties, says it's still seeing a lot of COVID-19 patients. So because the caseload is so big, they're focused on educating household members who live with someone who's infected, since they are the most likely to get infected as well. And you found Denver isn't tracing because there were too many cases. Are they going to start that again? Yeah, that's the plan. They're reassessing how to best reinstate it once there are fewer cases and community spread calms down. And that will make it easier to identify where a person might have contracted the disease and to whom they might have spread it to. It seems that a manageable caseload is a key part of effective contact tracing. One epidemiologist said she's concerned that after the stay-at-home order is lifted, people will return to normal social behavior too soon. And there will be another overload of patients. And she said the state needs to have more testing and staff in place to be ready for that. So there's an economic component here, too, for Denver. Their budget has taken a hit because of COVID-19, which is making responding to COVID-19 more difficult, right? 
Yeah, that's right. Denver officials said that because of the huge hit to the economy, they don't plan on hiring any new employees to help with conduct, uh, to, to help conduct contact tracing. It requires phone calls and a lot of manpower to get that done. So what are they going to do to fill those gaps? They said they're hoping to get volunteers like graduate students and retirees to help out. And other counties have said the same thing. They'll recruit maybe medical students and other volunteers to help uh, increase these efforts. Michael, Sam and John, thank you all for being here. Thank you. CPR reporters Michael Elizabeth Sackis, Sam Brash, and John Daly will continue to report on how local public health departments are gearing up and how the state is responding, both on air and at CPR.org. When we come back, we head to Pueblo's sister city. It's in Italy, one of the hardest hit places in the world. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As we all navigate significant disruptions to our normal routines, Colorado Public Radio is deeply grateful for the central force of donors who continue to sustain the news and music we all rely on, CPR's Evergreen members. Your crucial monthly donations are the reliable support CPR can count on during these uncertain times. Evergreen gifts come in all sizes, and their collective impact is felt every day. Thank you for being a Colorado Public Radio Evergreen member. Italy has been a hotspot in the worldwide pandemic. One of the hardest hit cities is Bergamo, which happens to be the sister city to Pueblo, Colorado. Producer Shauna Lewis spoke with a man who lives in Bergamo to give us a better understanding of what's happening. Camouflaged military trucks slowly rolled through the streets of Pueblo's sister city in Italy last month. COVID-19 was ravaging Bergamo. The convoy carried hundreds of bodies, taking them to crematoriums elsewhere because the city's funeral homes could no longer keep up with the death toll from the virus. At the beginning, there was only a few cases of coronavirus, and so we thought uh, we could get through. But in a few days, just a few days, the virus was too aggressive. That's Giuseppe Venuti of Lombardi's Rotary. He was born and raised in the historic city nestled in the foothills of northern Italy's Alps. Bergamo is known for its cobblestone streets, historic landmarks, and vibrant history. But back in mid-February, thousands of locals went to Milan to cheer for their soccer team during a big game. The virus came back to their city with them, igniting what's been called a biological bomb, a threat the city's massive stone walls built hundreds of years ago couldn't defend against. Since the end of February, the number of hospitalized and dead uh, seems to point upwards and uh, never stop. The local healthcare system was overwhelmed. After a few days, we stopped hearing the, the ambulance sirens and hoped that uh, it might be a good sign. But we dramatically realized that the virus had hit in a so devastating way that uh, it led to the collapse of our hospitals. Weeks later, the suffering continues. Maybe you can hear the helicopter that is going to find uh, someone which is uh, at the moment really sick. The local clergy does the best they can to help those who've lost someone to the virus to say farewell to the ones they love. Still now, the chaplain of Bergamo Cemetery places his own phone on the coffins of the deaths. 
and uh, calls the families for a last prayer together before cremation. Most reports put the death toll at more than 2,000, but some estimates say it's likely twice that in this city of about 122,000. We have lost uh, a lot of friends, uh, a lot of relatives, and many of us have uh, had the symptoms, me too, related to coronavirus, but uh, we prefer to stay at home and to to leave place at the hospital for uh, the ones who are worst of us. They mourn the loss of their elders. In this period, we have lost a huge patrimony. Uh, grandparents had been the most uh, affected uh, segment. They are the ones teaching us values and generosity. They taught as not to get down and never give up because we are from Bergamo, we are from Lombardy and uh, we are strong but uh, the situation uh, is uh, too strong for us too and we are the most affected province in Italy and maybe in Europe. Venuti says there's something else you should know about Bergamo. We are uh, also famous for voluntary service. There is no place in the world where Bergamo citizens have not been uh, to suit the sufferings of populations uh, in difficulty. Now we are the ones who need help. We are not used to ask uh, for it, but uh, this, this is too much even for us. The Pueblo Rotary Club and Pueblo's Sister City Commission are raising funds to send to Bergamo so they can purchase medical supplies. Venuti knows that Colorado is dealing with COVID-19 too, so he says to pay attention to this virus, wear your mask and gloves if you need to leave your home, and he sends a big hug to all Colorado citizens that are listening to this interview. For CPR News, I'm Shauna Lewis in Pueblo. We've posted a link to Pueblo's fundraiser to support its sister city, Bergamo, at CPR.org. Even though our thoughts are with Bergamo and cities around the world hard hit by COVID-19, traveling abroad is out of the question for most of us right now. Just one of many ways COVID-19 is disrupting lives. On Colorado Matters, we're committed to sharing individual stories from this pandemic. A group of college students from Colorado State University were on a study abroad trip earlier this year, a semester at sea. They were living aboard a ship and planned to dock at ports across Europe, Asia, Africa, and South America. But in January and February, the group had to skip port after port, China, then Malaysia, then India, because of growing concerns about the new coronavirus. Here's Scott Denning, an instructor on the program. Part of the problem, of course, was that we didn't want to go anywhere where the virus was. So, so some of that was on our end. And then um, the, the other piece of it is that we were trying to avoid going somewhere that later developed a virus because then we would become a pariah ship and not be allowed into other countries. They sailed for weeks in the open ocean with very limited access to internet or phones. Jordan Lang, a CSU junior, experienced a sense of powerlessness she's never felt before. When things started getting canceled and I couldn't really contact my mom, um, it was like really, really frustrating to just be like in the ocean and not be able to like 
let my family know kind of what's going on. Um, but there was a point where I just felt like completely defeated and I called my mom and I was just sobbing and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I want to go home. And she's like, well, I don't know what to do either. And at that point it was just like, it was really scary for me because, um, like this is the first time I've gone to my mom about something and she's been like, I don't know what to do. The trip was cut short in early March, and the study abroad group all flew home safely from South Africa. Like the rest of CSU, Lang is finishing her classes online. How has COVID-19 disrupted your life? Send us a voice memo, coloradomatters at gmail.com. Again, coloradomatters at gmail.com, and we may share it on the show. Craft beer has always been a competitive industry in Colorado. Now the coronavirus has forced some breweries to get even more creative to stay afloat. CPR's Grace Hood brings us this story that's a twist on a summertime favorite for grown-ups. For people cooped up at home under the coronavirus stay-at-home order, this jingle may be the happiest thing that they've heard all week. Only it's not the kids who are excited, it's the adults. I'm excited to, to get my beer today. Sanitas Brewing Company in Boulder came up with the adult-themed ice cream beer delivery truck a few weeks ago. Delivery driver Ryan Carroll says it's been a hit. I've actually had adults, not kids, chasing me down the street. Governor Jared Polis declared breweries essential businesses, and many tap rooms remain open. But it's pickup and delivery that Polis allows that are the new lifeblood of breweries. Even so, Sanitas needed a way to stand out. We wanted to do something that was fun. Sanitas co-founder Michael Memzik said the nostalgic appeal of an old-school neighborhood ice cream truck became the answer. We searched the internet and found some of the most authentic ice cream truck speaker megaphone things that we could find. And we have two large speakers that are installed in the van, a whole PA system. Memsick's been working with the Liquor Enforcement Division to allow walk-up sales in addition to online purchases. Both help keep Sanitas afloat. The the in-the-moment drives it up significantly. The new idea is for Sanitas to drive three or four times through a neighborhood, allowing customers to order online, and the driver to return with their beer purchase. The nurses, the doctors are doing so much more valuable things than we are today, but we're also trying to survive. If we can have a little bit of fun with people for an afternoon and it gives them something to laugh about, I feel pretty good about what we've done. Memzik's tried not to lose sight of why he started this whole gimmick in the first place. People need a little fun in their lives right now. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Let's reflect on random acts of kindness at a time when stress, frustration, and anxiety may feel overwhelming. That's what the latest episode of At a Distance explores. It's the podcast from CPR News about living your best life in isolation. Here are CPR reporters May Ortega and Sam Brash. All right, so like a little less than a year ago, um, I decided to go backpacking in Alaska, which I know it's not like terribly remarkable for me. I'm a nature bro from Colorado. Yeah, very on brand. It's very on brand. (laughs) But the thing is like what was different is that 
I had heard about a trip through a friend of a friend, uh, this group of people who were going backpacking, and I knew nothing, next to nothing, about these people. Wow, okay. the point is, okay, so I had just gotten through, like, a tough breakup, and I was feeling really down. I was feeling really depressed. Um, Mm -hmm. This trip that I heard about, turns out it was full of other nerdy science reporters, so... Nice, your people! My people, right? It's not like I knew absolutely zero yeah. And when I got there, what I found out was that they really did have some, like, maybe not cures, but at least, like, balms for loneliness, for, like, the depression and isolation I was feeling. Like, what kind of stuff? Like, little things. Like, when I showed up, I got a pair of cat socks and finger puppets <laughs> just as a little gift, which was lovely. <laughs> And this group of friends made, they like checked in all the time too on each other. They wanted to see how everybody was doing, how I was doing. And that's really cute. (laughs) Yeah, it was cute. And it really helped. Like I went from feeling really depressed and and locked inside my own head to to feeling seen and understood, which has lasted until now, until this quarantine. And so this episode, we're going to focus on small acts of kindness and how they can make a big difference right now. One of my friends from this trip actually wrote a whole article about this. Her name is Sarah Kaplan. She's a science writer with The Washington Post. And she thinks that during this pandemic, it's more important than ever to be nice because it can improve our physical and mental health. Okay, so then let's call her. Yes. (laughs) I brought her up for a reason. I still have her phone number. We can give her a call. Cool. Okay, Sarah Kaplan, are are you there? Can you hear me? I'm here. Yep. Um, Okay, so so May Ortega, this is Sarah Kaplan. She's a science writer for the Washington Post. And she's also the person who let me come on her backpacking trip. Why was it uh, eight days in the wilderness in Alaska? Eight days in the wilderness and you guys let me come... Yeah, they didn't know me at all either. Like We're still talking to each all. other, so I guess it worked out. <laughs> so it worked in that way. All right, so from your article and also just like from Alaska and knowing you, I know you're kind of like an expert in, in human connection, both on the science side of it and also just like in your own personal life. How does being alone like put us at risk? How does it put our mental and physical health at risk? We all know this from experience that um, it doesn't feel good to be lonely, right? Our bodies are built to be around one another. Um, So actually, you know, when a person is isolated from other people, their body basically starts gearing up to have to respond to threats alone. And the idea is that like, if you were a uh, hunter gatherer in prehistoric times and you were separated from your community and you needed to flee a saber toothed tiger, your body needed to be prepared to do that by itself. And so it sort of pumps you full Hmm. of all of these chemicals that enable you to do that. But now, um, especially in this moment of social distancing, the threats that we face are a lot more abstract. You know, the body's response to that loneliness is not necessarily helpful in getting us through this pandemic. What made you want to write about this topic? Like, was there a moment where you said, I have to write this story? I think I started looking into it because I was really feeling the effects of isolation. I live uh, in D.C. I have a roommate, but um, my whole family is in New York. And it had been really hard 
feeling so far from them, especially knowing that they were in the city that is kind of the epicenter of the epidemic in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I was curious about what this was doing to me. And I had actually a few years ago covered this big meta-analysis, so a study of studies essentially that found that people who were lonely or lived alone or socially isolated actually died sooner than people who aren't. And so I was wow. that's sort of what got me looking into it. But then I as I was talking to these psychologists, they found that um you know, people who were socially isolated were about 25% more likely to die by the end of the study period. Um, But when they studied social connection and they asked people who felt strongly supported by their social networks, they were 50% more likely to live. So the the correlation is like, I mean, basically what that tells you is that like loneliness can be painful, but kinship is like an even stronger solution. And I just found that so uplifting. And then there's these other studies that found that if you are experiencing pain, if you look at a picture of someone you love, it actually makes that pain less intense. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And scientists call this the buffering effect. So if we, you know, if when we're apart from other people, our bodies gear up for stress, right, and gear up to be like in fight or flight mode. When we're around people or when we get a sense of security from our friends and family and our social networks, our physiology is just is calmer. Um, and that in turn can lead to a stronger immune system. Wow. And it sounds like you're pointing out too that a lot of those things that might increase this buffering effect They're not things we have to do with people who are nearby. Like we can do them for people who are far away too. Yeah. I mean, the, the science of sort of how much of this, you know, the difference between physical and virtual connection, that's sort of still an open question. But actually one of my favorite experiments was that, so this was was with sheep and they um, put a sheep alone. Sheep are also social animals. They travel in herds. And so the, the, lonely sheep was not happy and then they showed the sheep a picture of another sheep and like its stress hormones decreased um (laughs) and who knows so it so that suggests that at least in this other mammal that there is some effect that is divorced from all of the like physical touching or smelling or hearing another person that simply seeing them can be not another person another sheep yeah so like having a a strong social network means that you should be trying to reach out to people that you love or your friends or whatever in these times I mean I think it's all about how we maintain our ties to one another right feeling like we are part of a community even when we're alone you know based on this research it does seem like seeing people is important even if it's just over web video I think that hearing people's voices is important. So maybe instead of texting, you call people, mm-hmm. call your grandma. Your grandma wants to hear from you. <laughs> One thing also that I, that I really loved is, you know, we've seen all these videos of, um, you know, people in, in Europe, like singing from their balconies. There yeah, is that famous um, yeah, Italian I've seen tenor. Yeah, I've videos. They're amazing. Yeah. You know, anything that makes you feel 
connected to other people. Um, yeah, I need something like that for sure. Like maybe I'll do that in my apartment building or something. Right. <laughs> I, I think like what's so interesting about all of this area is like your article to me pointed out how there's so such like an immediate need for research that talks about how there's this big connection between psychological well-being and immunal <laughs> well-being. And yeah. that's something maybe we thought about as interesting before, but now it just seems like so relevant. Like we want answers so badly mm-hmm. to these questions yeah. because they're at odds almost. Yeah. Well, the thing is that they don't have to be at odds, right? I mean, I think that definitely there is no replacement for like being able to hug your mom. Um, and, and I feel very helpless, right? And, and all of us are helpless. We can't, aside from participating in physical distancing, we can't really do anything to protect the people we care about. Or at least I thought we couldn't do anything. And then I heard about this research and now it just feels like every time I call my mom, I'm like, I'm doing this for your health. (laughs) Um, I'm making your immune system stronger by reminding you of our social connection. (laughs) That's right. See, that just means you have to call my mom. She's probably like, where is this child? Yeah, I don't know if you should tell the Jewish moms about this, Sarah. This seems like something they could really lord over us pretty effectively. <laughs> like, you failing to call me literally hurts my antibody count. Yeah. So that's wrong. <laughs> so we asked Sarah, Master of Science and Cute Gifts, for some simple ideas that might help you feel connected to other people right now. Things that can make you and your friends healthier during this pandemic and that are backed up by scientific research. By science. Science. So here we go. First, reach out to the people close to you. Calling and talking to people, whether it's over the phone or over video, is always preferable to text because hearing people's voices and seeing their faces does have a physiological response. So especially older people who are more likely to be isolated and generally have um, smaller social networks, make sure to keep in touch with them. Second, help out your neighbors even with the little things. If you can do something nice for someone who is vulnerable, right? Like if you can get groceries for an elderly neighbor or volunteering, if you can do so in a way that is safe is really, really good, both because it's good for you and because it's good for your community um, and your community needs it, especially now. Next, channel your inner artist and share what you make with friends. Do small creative things, whether it's sending a handwritten card or, you know, like goofy videos or something. Also, if you're in a home with family or maybe you have a roommate, treat this time as an opportunity. If you're quarantined with people, like, Take advantage of this time to be with them. One of the psychologists I talked to told me about how his two sons, he's spending more time with them now than he almost ever does because he's usually at his university and in the lab and working really hard. And finally, be sure to take care of yourself too. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of research also on just sort of like coping with anxiety with mindfulness techniques and breathing and exercise. All of those things are really good for us to be doing right now to manage both our mental and our physical health. So in the spirit of acts of kindness that have been backed up by science, we asked some friends to share nice things people have done for them during this pandemic and how those things helped them out. My name is Devin Reynolds. I'm from Boulder and 
someone sent me a care package with a bunch of puzzles. Now, when I get to sit down and do a puzzle, I get to think about that person and feel loved by them. Hi, this is Bridger Langford out of San Diego, California. Probably the best thing that's happened has been a group Zoom call with my extended family. It was amazing to see uh, all these people who love me out of nowhere. Hi, my name is Meredith Bixler. Um, and one thing I've enjoyed at this time is howling at, with my neighbors to show appreciation for healthcare workers. We do it every night at eight. Um, this has helped uh, me to show my gratitude, but also to feel connected to my community and connected to something bigger than myself. At a Distance, the podcast from CPR News about living our best lives in isolation. It's hosted by Sam Brash and May Ortega. You can hear this and other episodes at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, another way to tackle anxiety during these strange times, one you'll be able to try out with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's stay-at-home order has been in place since March, and as parents everywhere are reporting, kids are getting a little bit restless. I'm bored. But CPR News can help. Hey, it's Francie Swidler from the CPR Newsroom, and we've built the Big Fun Button. Push the button and get an idea to beat back the boredom. Play paper football. Draw a portrait of your pet. Make a list of something in the house that starts with each letter of the alphabet. Check it out at CPR.org. As disruption from the novel coronavirus creeps into nearly every aspect of our lives, it's left many of us anxious and looking for better ways to cope. Sona Demijian is the director of the University of Colorado Boulder's Renee Crown Wellness Institute. She studies meditation. Sona, welcome. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you. We're several weeks into the state stay-at-home order. I know I feel restless and anxious, but the ways that I'd normally deal with those feelings, meeting a friend, going for a hike or to the gym, or even making a fun plan for the future, none of those are options right now. Starting a meditation practice sounds like it could offer some reprieve. Where could I start? I think when people hear the word meditation, they often have images and ideas that make that practice sound somewhat exotic or inaccessible. There are so many ways to practice, in particular, a type of meditation called mindfulness. And one of the things I often recommend to people is to start small. You know, one of the challenges, as you were mentioning, of our current context is that there's so much happening around us and so much uncertainty, so much change. There's so much information that we're processing and a lot of it creates this sense of anxiety and fear and shock as well as loss and grief and, you know, a lack of access to the types of activities and places and people that for most of us were core parts of our lives and our mental health and wellness. You know, one of the ways that mindfulness can help us is by grounding our attention in the present moment. So really simple practices, again, starting small, like focusing our attention on our breathing are great ways to begin a mindfulness practice. And I love this idea of turning something that we do at every moment of every day and breathing and and making it a tool. Um, And you talk about mindfulness, and that's different than a compassionate practice. Tell me a little bit about the difference between those types of practices. 
you know, mindfulness is a foundational practice that itself can bring enormous benefit to people. And compassion is another type of meditation that builds on a foundation of mindfulness. And it fundamentally is about recognizing that we are all connected. And I think one of the opportunities of this time is to see the the vastness and the depth of the interconnection that exists, not just in our local communities and our state and our nation, but truly around our world. So compassion asks us to bring a sense of care for others. And I think there are so many ways in which we can do this right now, um, including people who are are ill and struggling with COVID-19, as well as struggling with the social isolation and all of the economic hardships that are part of our lives and our world right now. And also to bring a deep sense of gratitude for people who are providing care. And those are people who are on the front lines, our healthcare workers, our public safety officials, you know, the people who are cooking and delivering food and and the teachers who are figuring out how to do their jobs from home and family members who are caring for friends and loved ones. And I think the other component that's critical to a compassion practice is also remembering to be compassionate with yourself. So remember that it's okay if you lose awareness, if you fall back into old habits and react in ways that are unwise, that you can, in those moments, also practice being gentle with yourself and having compassion and remembering that it's always possible in that moment to make a choice to start again, to respond with with care for yourself and for others. And you mentioned that solitude. I know some people are finding solace in guided group meditations during this period of social distance, where they know other people are meditating at the same time, even if they can't be together physically. You know, I think maintaining our social ties and a sense of connection and community with others is so critical. I know that we have been working both with researchers and other members within the Crown Institute to convene times for people to practice meditation virtually with one another, you know, using Zoom and Google Hangouts and other sorts of online tools for creating and sustaining a sense of community. Similarly, we've been working with educators to explore what are ways that we could do that to help support teachers and parents and family members during this time. So, you know, the practice of mindfulness and the practice of compassion have traditionally always been grounded and embedded in community. And we are fortunate today that we have ways through technology to connect with one another. I am continually struck by the breadth of ways that we can use video conferencing technology. How it's is, really amazing, isn't it? It really is. How has your personal meditation practice changed with COVID-19? My personal practice has increasingly relied on just the same kinds of practices that we've been talking about. So looking for small repeated daily ways to bring mindfulness into each moment are a core part of my day. You know, I think one of the things that is essential is 
bringing a sense of awareness to what we're thinking and feeling. One of the practices that I think is so important is this practice of noting. People often use the phrase, naming is taming. And so gently noting emotions that might be present. So noticing perhaps, you know, I'm feeling fear right now or sadness is present. And I think this helps to provide an alternative to what I think can be much more automatic ways of responding to emotion. Often that takes the form of either avoiding or or seeking to push down or suppress what we're feeling or really getting swept away or kind of hijacked by emotions. So I think that that practice of um, pausing, noticing, naming the emotion is really critical. It helps us to notice that what we're feeling is not, it doesn't consume us, that we are bigger than that emotion. And intense emotion, you know, can be experienced like a wave that comes in and comes out. And noticing in those moments helps give us choice about how we want to respond in a way that will be really most caring for ourselves and for others in our lives. So so that practice of noticing is really critical. And as we were talking about the practice of compassion, you know, bringing that sense of care, the sense of connection and um, uh, really presence with other people in our lives. We don't just want to talk about meditation. Demigian compared meditation to swimming. You can't learn through lecture. You have to get in the pool and try it out for yourself. So we asked her to record a short guided meditation on her iPhone. We invite you to join us. Here we go. As we begin this three-minute breathing space practice together, I invite you first to bring your awareness to your posture in this moment. Perhaps notice the sensations of your feet on the floor, or of sitting, the chair or cushion providing support to the body. If it's comfortable, perhaps also allow your eyes to close, or if you prefer, keep them open with a soft and steady gaze. In this first minute, of the three-minute breathing space practice, asking ourselves, what is my experience right now? Simply acknowledging what is present in your experience. Perhaps asking, what thoughts are going through the mind? As best you can, acknowledging thoughts as mental events, just noticing what is here. Also, what feelings are present in your awareness? Perhaps turning towards any sense of difficult or challenging emotions. And what body sensations are present? And now inviting thoughts, emotions, and sensations to fade into the background of your awareness in this second step we bring our attention to the sensations of breathing at the belly, perhaps placing a hand, if it's helpful for you, on the belly, and fully bringing your awareness to the sensation simply of breathing in and breathing out. Noticing that there is nothing that is needed 
nothing to do in this moment other than simply inviting the attention to gather and anchor with the sensations of breathing in and breathing out. And now in step three, inviting your awareness to expand, allowing the field of awareness to include not only the sensations of the belly rising and falling, but to include the entire field of the body, and perhaps even expanding from the body to the room or the space where you are, becoming fully aware of what is present in your experience right now. And when you're ready, allowing your eyes to open, bringing movement back to the fingers and toes, allowing and inviting this sense of anchored and expanded awareness to the next moments of your day. Gosh, I hate to bring us back to earth after that. Hopefully we don't lose that sense of relaxation, at least for a little while. Sona Demijian is the professor at CU Boulder's Department of Psychology and Neuroscience, and she is the director of the university's Renee Crown Wellness Institute. Thank you for joining us today. You can get Colorado Matters anytime, on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. CPR News.